Welcome back to the Kyra London podcast. Today, I have Dr. Guy Reichman. I consider him to be chiropractic royalty, and he's calling us all the way from Detroit in Michigan, although I actually thought I was going to speak to him in Puerto Rico, but <laughs> we explore how that happened uh, halfway through. But look, Guy Reichman has been there, done that in terms of um, being a chiropractor. He graduated from Palmer College in the 70s. He ended up becoming a chancellor of that same institution and then um, took on Life University's chancellor role of a position that he still holds today. Uh, what a life he's led. You know, we, uh, we discuss a, an early meeting we had as I was a new graduate. We relive that story. But this is a conversation that just winds its way through Dr. Reichman's life. It's a pretty interesting one. You'll get lots of inspiration from it. It's great if you're a chiropractor. You don't have to be a chiropractor to get some inspiration and motivation from a life well lived. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Dr. Guy Reichman. Today, we've got Dr. Guy Reichman with us on the Cairo London podcast. I am extremely happy to have you along, mate. Um, thank you for agreeing to be on our podcast. Um, can I tell you a story first, though? Of course. It's your show, especially. <laughs> exactly. I love this medium. You can just do what you want and no one really cares. Well, maybe they stop listening after a while, but um, hey, um, I, when I had this idea, and I'd like to thank Stu for setting this up, um, Stu Bernson uh, from the Cairo One Group. Um, but the reason why, because I heard that you were neighbors of his uh, down in uh, Puerto Rico, right? Puerto Rico. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 casting my mind back, because you've been to Australia quite a few times, right? Uh, 40. 40 times. Yes. So there was a young, newly graduated chiropractor in 1996 in Brisbane sitting uh, at the back of a lecture hall that was probably put on by Mark Postles or whoever was actually running the Quest program at that point. It was Mark. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I literally graduated the year before and I still remember this story that you got up and told about Walt Disney, right? <laughs> and I, I'm possibly you've told this story a few times, but um, it was sort of on Walt's deathbed. Uh, he was... He had the sort of people gathered round, I believe, all from what I remember, uh, that were sort of taking on the legacy of Walt Disney, uh, the company, especially the, um, you know, I guess the theme parks or, or, or whatever they are. And he was like, don't let them change or ruin my dream. Yeah. Uh, and then he was like, um, because apparently there was this, you know, they got a consultant in and goes, you know, I bet you I know, I found out a way we can double the profits of um, Walt Disney right? or, or Disney World. We can start selling beer in the, um, uh, in, in, in the, in the food halls, right? Yes. And, then, and then Walt's like, you're not getting it. Um, it's not quite uh, along the, the idea of what I had for Walt Disney World, right? So that really like, um, I loved that story um, and it sort of stuck with me about, you know, someone's vision and how they don't want to sort of have it interrupted. Um, but 
That was a cooler story. I'm just sort of, I guess the question is though, that was 25 years ago, that story, right? That I listened to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, obviously the idea is the vision you were, you were sort of, you know, I guess implying that chiropractic and the vision of chiropractic for healthcare. How do you reckon we did 25 years down the track with regards to has anyone ruined our vision or your vision for chiropractic 25 years later? Yeah, you know, I, I appreciate that story. It was actually um, exactly like you laid out, but even more dramatic. He, he was in the hospital with cancer, uh, throat cancer, uh, not knowing that he was going to die about a week later. And they, were, they still had not built Disney World. They were still purchasing pieces of land quietly in Florida. They didn't want anyone to know they were coming because the prices would have shot through the roof. Uh, but he and a group of people had been working on it. He had, he had the plans actually plastered on the ceiling of the hospital room. And he got out of the hospital for about a week. And he loaded up all these people on a plane. And back in those days, you know, you didn't fly on a plane in pajamas and yoga pants and uh, flip-flops. Uh, you got on an airplane, women were in high heels and business, you know, suits and men were in wingtip shoes. And uh, so he flies them all down to Florida and gets them out of the plane on one of those horrible humid days in uh, Florida, central Florida, and takes them right out because he knew he didn't have time, took them right out to the middle of what was eventually going to be Disney World. They're standing in a swamp. And uh, <clears throat> he's pointing out where everything's going to go, where Bucky Fuller's geodesic dome was going to be, and the hydroponics displays. and Because it was his dream when he started Disneyland in, in California. He was really interested in building communities that were green, what we would call today green. But by the time he had enough money from the amusement park to actually afford the land to build the communities, uh, Southern California had already swallowed up uh, Disney World or land. So his whole idea of Disney World was to create these living communities. That was his dream. And uh, so he put everybody out in the field. And you'd have to know Walt, you know, we saw him as this grandfatherly kind of figure on the cartoons, you know, introducing cartoons on Saturday. In actual fact, he was a tough, mean character, a union buster. Uh, I mean, just, I mean, he was, a, he had a drink every night before he left Disneyland uh, with his secretary because he had a back problem and he blamed chiropractic for it, just so you know. Um, <laughs> anyway, he, uh, you know, so people had never seen him in anything but this tough business mode. And he gets him out in this field and he starts to cry, and which really took them back. And uh, he looked at all of them and said, don't let my dream get messed up. Messed up. Knew he was, yeah. Don't let my dream get messed up because he knew he wasn't going to see it. And they all filed up one at a time in front of him nose to nose and uh, looked him in the eye and said, don't let the dream get messed up. And I didn't say that to correct the story, but it's a really, it's hard to me because my dad was a 1947 graduate from Palmer College. He came in those big, post-war classes. I think there were 3,000 students at the time and uh, graduated in 1947 in the same class with Bill Blair and uh, some other people and set up a a practice in Albuquerque, New Mexico on South Central uh, Avenue on Highway 66, right, that ran through Albuquerque, New Mexico and practiced there. Uh, My sister joined him later in life and that practice has been running continuously since 1947. And my mother, who just passed away a couple of years ago, ran the office every day 
uh, and she, until two months before she passed away, she was 93 at the time. Uh, and I always tell, I always say, don't give her a trophy because she complained about it every day. The reason why she went to the office every day up until age 93 was because she couldn't find one person in all those years to run the front desk correctly. So she had to go in and get it right every single day, right? Fix it up, right? So that was my mom. But when my mom passed away, she was, she had a really bad fall and broken her ankles and couldn't walk anymore. And so it was time. But we were at the the hospital looking out the window, St. Joseph's Hospital in Albuquerque, and we could look right down to where the original office started in 1947. Uh, it was a real moment. So when we tell the Disney story about don't let the dream get messed up, uh, I see, I'm, I'm getting choked up. I see myself every day standing in front of my dad wow. um, and promising him that I wouldn't let the dream get messed up uh, from those early chiropractors. So, uh, so to answer your question, though, about, you know, how we've progressed, um, and we can probably talk more about this later. I think the profession is in about the same place it was, at least on its emotional heart, you know, internally, forget the external world, which has had a phenomenal breakthrough with chiropractic, in my opinion, but internally, the profession itself probably has the same battles going on that it's always had with about the same number of foes two and four, you know, the, the, the old days, we call them straights and mixers. And uh, today we call, you know, they've tried to divert it into, um, science-based versus philosophical and, you know, all these different terms, uh, all of which are misnomers and all of which are misleading for people and political in nature. But I think the profession internally is about the same. I think that's what, what's changed dramatically is the acceptance of chiropractic externally. Uh, I don't think my dad ever dreamed when they were charging $2 a visit in 1947 in Albuquerque, that there would ever be insurance coverage for chiropractic. I don't think they ever dreamed that um, uh, the government would uh, be funding chiropractic research, minimally, of course, but at least funding it to some degree, which happened in uh, the mid to late 1990s. Uh, We can talk about all that if you like, but, uh, and I think what's happened also is a huge, uh, these are the positive parts, a huge transformation in society to people recognizing that we can't fight nature, that we're going to have to find a way to live in balance with nature, whether it's with the environment or whether it's in our relationship with each other or in our health, right? That, you know, and I think COVID even brought it out more, even though we see this mass vaccination politics going on and things of that nature. um, I think people are starting to come to the realization that they need to be getting their internal environment cleaned up and healthy if they're going to survive you know, on the planet. So I think there's been this huge transformation of society culturally. Uh, That's the positive side. The other side of it is uh, people are taking more drugs than they've ever taken. Uh, I was just talking with Joe Esposito this morning, um, and he was telling me that, um, you know, in my father's day, they got phenomenal results in chiropractic because people weren't taking drugs and they weren't eating a lot of fast foods and they weren't breathing a lot of pollution and eating pesticides, you know, taking in pesticides and mercury all the time. And now you get a patient come in, they're so clogged up with crap and their brain's been so damaged due to trauma and all those kinds of things and, and stress of culture that sometimes I think that we see not that chiropractic doesn't work, but what we're working with 
is a milieu of, of toxicity and trying to see the results inside. So, you know, things have evolved, but I think the principles of chiropractic remain the same. Uh, one last comment, since we're doing historical perspectives, I think the big issue is, is technology. You know, I look at the early chiropractors going all the way back to Didi's time when I was the president and chancellor at Palmer, uh, I got to spend a lot of time in the mansion, yeah. uh, the, the, in BJ's mansion. And in there, he showed the, er, the very early, like within months after uh, chiropractic had sort of been discovered in 1895, the ads that they were running in the Quad City uh, newspapers, you know, advertising what they were doing, uh, which I'm sure was really revolutionary at the time for a doctor to be advertising in a newspaper, uh, you know, these kinds of things. And then, of course, BJ brought radio, uh, you know, uh, into the world across the Mississippi. And you can still see uh, in the bell tower where he broadcasts from in the evenings, uh, all the things he stood for, like women's suffrage. He was uh, on the outside of the brick. You can still see the faded sort of uh, images of uh, women's suffrage and things that he was standing for and broadcasting. Uh, and then, of course, he brought radio and television. Uh, besides radio, he brought television west of the Mississippi. So WOC right across the school. It's right across the street from Davenport. It's the NBC affiliate. Uh, WOC stood for the wonders of chiropractic. Yeah. And uh, Dave, BJ's son, was, a huge, was one of the first people in cell telephones, before that even existed, before it was even on people's tongues. In fact, the Palmer Broadcasting Empire was worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars when Dave passed away. Uh, Ronald Reagan, his first job was at WOC working um, uh, there for Dave Palmer. He was the sportscaster in Davenport, Iowa. So, you know, there's this long history of the early pioneers using whatever technology was available at the time uh, on, in this case, on an educational level to advance the profession. And of course, then Joe Felicia and I got into video. We produced the very first educational programs at the Osmond Studios out in Provo on video with, you know, stars at the time using sort of Star Wars sets, which was, you know, the big film at the time. Uh, but, you know, back then only 10% of Americans even had a VCR. Yeah. So, you know, we would do seminars and present how to use why you should educate and the research and then um, convince them that video education was a technology that they needed to streamline. So they didn't have to do a lot of repetition in the office and that education was better because tapes don't have bad days and good days when they go in the office, you know, those, <laughs> they don't get behind in the reception room. And so and, do you reckon uh, that's gone all the way onto like Instagram now is like the evolution yeah. of the modern world. Right. Um, and so uh, I guess we're using, technology well in some ways podcasts have gone back to the old radio days um yeah. but in modern times like instagram and the sort of accessibility to social media is just a phenomenal um yeah. uh, resource for some some chiropractors are using it well others aren't using it that well but um, we just uh, we just released the first ever in the profession what's known as remote patient monitoring um you look today at uh, i don't know if they have this in europe but they have a place here called uh, Caravan. Um, it's around in major cities. They have a glass, just a, gl a glass tube that goes up maybe seven, eight stories with cars stacked in it. Oh, yeah. That's their advertising. Um, and you can uh, order a car now. You don't go, you, you sit in your living room watching football, and at halftime, you order a car and it's delivered to your house. 
lending tree, uh, which is a, a, a uh, you get ready to mortgage a home, right? Or buy a home. You don't go to the bank. Uh, you don't go anywhere. In fact, I just sold my ranch out in Colorado. I never met the person who's buying it. I wasn't at the closing. I was in Miami while they were closing in Florida, right? Uh, you know, or in uh, Colorado. Uh, and you start going down through them. When's the last time you went to a bank to get cash or to make a deposit? Hmm. You don't do it anymore, right? It's all done remotely and they're all using apps and nobody's even thinking any longer about going to a brick and mortar facility to get even care. Uh, here in the United States, the average hospital, major hospital change, 50% of their patients are on remote patient management, remote patient monitoring. They don't even come in. Uh, there's a healthcare system here called Forward that started in San Francisco and they're spreading across the country. There's no staff. Uh, you go in, there's no waiting room, there's no staff. You stand at a piece of equipment, you hold it, it measures everything that your body's doing. Uh, and then you have a virtual uh, con consult with an MD on a television screen. So, so I guess you know, we, that, we're going to have to learn how to adapt our technology, but the principle has stayed the same. That's the almost the full circle as well, though, is that, you know, to a degree, you have to attend the chiropractor, don't you, to actually get the chiropractic adjustment. So is that, yes, future, is that future proofing us or is that making us stay in the uh, dark ages then? No, you have to go in to get the adjustment. I mean, let's face it, the adjustment is the miracle. Yeah. But I used to ask a question in my philosophy classes at Sherman. Uh, David Koku, who was one of my students, reminded me of this recently. My final exam was always the same. What's more important, the, the adjustment or the philosophy? And the argument always was that um, the adjustment, if people don't get the philosophy, they'll get a few adjustments and they'll vanish when they feel better. But if they understand the philosophy, they'd hunt down someone to give them an adjustment for the rest of their lifetime if they really get it. So the problem with chiropractic, I think, at this point in our cultural brain um, is that we think the only thing of value that the patient will pay for is the thrust on a table in a brick and mortars building. And in actual fact, when people get the big idea of chiropractic, they have all sorts of questions. How do I eat? What about vaccination? What about drugs? How do I birth my children? You know, you go on down the list, right? Um, how do I have a different attitude in looking at the world? All those kinds of things. And chiropractors ought to be getting paid equally, in my opinion, for managing the information that patients are getting, along with coming into the office and the management of the information for the patient, their lifestyle, what you and I would call the chiropractic lifestyle, which we have the privilege of li living, which means I see the picture around, you know, the race. I mean, you and I are out being healthy, riding bikes, getting exercise, eating well, all these things. Why shouldn't our patients have that same privilege and they don't know how to do it, and we need to manage it. We ought to be getting paid for it along with the adjustment in the office. Yeah. It's a great, you know, great concept and obviously something that does need to evolve as, especially now everyone's working from home and, um, you know, this this idea of, you know, I think retail shops are obviously going to be dying pretty soon. You know, a, a lot of them are going to be struggling because Amazon is taking over and all this sort of stuff. But, hey, let's interrupt slightly. Yep. And... I'm in sitting in London in the UK, and you're in Puerto Rico right now, right? I'm in actually I'm in uh, in Detroit right now. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so is I that? Wouldn't, I wouldn't be sitting here with a sweater on if I was in Puerto at my place in Puerto Rico. So um, 
Same time zone, I'm assuming? Same time zone. Lucky for that because uh, that would have stuffed my organisation up a bit. But <laughs> um, Well, just describe to me what's around you, though. What's, uh, um, where are you exactly and then what do you see just uh, around you right now? Um, so my significant other, um, I, I call her my wife. We're not married, but we've been together forever, um, has to remain in Michigan. Uh, because of children from a previous marriage. So uh, I, I live most of the year in Puerto Rico, uh, but then I have to travel back and forth between our place here and it's actually Birmingham. It's just outside of Detroit. It's a nice neighborhood. So I, I'm back and forth frequently, um, but uh, moved to Puerto Rico earlier this or year and a half ago, two years ago. And um, I, I raised my, I, I spent a good portion of my life. We can go back to it if you want. Uh, in Jamaica. Uh, I had a small resort there and um, raised one of my, my oldest daughter was raised there when she was four. And my second daughter was conceived there. And then one night the communist government came in that Castro was supporting. Uh, they won the election, a guy named Michael Manley, and they nationalized all the hotels the next day. And we, and we just had a, a beautiful little 60 acre resort up in the mountains with 25 four-poster beds, old English cottage beds, and we ate breakfast underneath banana thatch. And uh, we were thinking about starting a school there at the time. So, um, but anyway, had to leave in the middle of the night with a couple suitcases through burning tires in the city and slept (laughs) in the airport and then got out with a couple suitcases. So I've always wanted to get back to the Caribbean and uh, Puerto Rico, you know, is a territory of the U.S. So yeah. Everything here is U.S. dollars, and um, people go back and forth. There's no um, uh, green cards and that kind of thing. They're US, we're all U.S. Okay. citizens. Yeah. But as residents of Puerto Rico, we get great tax breaks also. I did so, hear that that was a, a, an advantage, yes. What do you know about London? And, uh, this year rather than 48%. Sorry, say that again? I, I'm paying 4% this year rather than 48%. Ooh. And yeah. you get good weather. I mean, there's there's like robbery going on there, isn't it? I know it's Fahrenheit, but it's 84 every single day. If you ask me, <laughs> right? And if it varies one degree in either direction, it's considered an odd day. So <laughs> it's 84 every single day, and I live right on the beach. And uh, half of the year, the water hits the fence around my place on the beach so hard that the house shakes with every wave. So wow. I'm, I'm right on the water. Amazing. Um, yeah, when, when the world returns to normal, um, Stu has invited us down there, so we'll have to take him up on that for sure. Absolutely. Um, it's a now, great restaurant scene. Yeah. yeah. And now if you've been to Australia 40 times, have you been to the UK before? Uh, many times. And so how aware are you of the chiropractic scene over here in the UK? Uh, fairly. Right? Fairly well. Because, um, uh, well, like uh, just before we went on air, uh, we don't really know each other. I'm enjoying the process of just getting to know you. And I need, to, you know, uh, I think when Stu introduced us, um, the concept of what I'm doing here or what we're doing in Cairo, mm-hmm. London, which is a pretty small fry thing compared to what uh, Stu has on the go. Um, but, uh, you know, I think he took us under his wings a little bit there when he worked out that we were about the same standard or level that he was at when he combined the first time to sort of go from like five clinics to 12 or whatever it was. And um, so that's where we're at. Um, But it's also interesting that chiropractic usage over here 
is is definitely having been in Australia for quite a few years as a chiropractor and seeing what it's like over here and looking at the insurance side of things like in the US it's definitely a very different thing and it's um, still to a degree in its infancy and that's why I set about trying to set up this group of clinics because I even found it hard within the big city of London to find a quality chiropractor to refer to just a few suburbs over, right? So that's the sort of sort of theory behind what, or how we got Cairo London together as a group um, and, you know, we now have nearly 20 chiropractors working in our group um, and... You know, this podcast started by having a conversation with each of those and it's evolved into sort of having international chiropractic celebrities on. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah and, and God bless you too, because it is absolutely going to be the future of chiropractic. I mean, if you look even at medicine, which has, has a tendency to be out in front of us from a business standpoint um, because of just who they are, um, the idea in Atlanta, you can hardly find an independent practitioner anymore. They're all part of the Emory Health System. So um, th there's no question that uh, organizing into groups, right, like Cairo One and your group there, uh, and, and so that patients can have a similar experience when they come in, uh, and to be able to then use the resources of the group collectively to create branding, et cetera, uh, absolutely the future. So. 100% support. I actually sit on the board uh, with a bunch of bankers that um, uh, Stu, that, that Cairo One is now associated with, right? Mm. He, he did say he, did, he doesn't look forward to those monthly meetings of having to sit in front of the board. So I didn't know you were on that board, though. I'm on that board. I'm the only chiropractor on that board. Obviously, it's, you know, Stu and all the group are, you know, added, but uh, I'm the only chiropractor on the board. And uh, they sit and talk about money with more uh, acronyms than we even have in chiropractic. So, yeah, right. But look, thanks for reminding me about that sort of how the globe is, you know, how do you describe it? We're, you, we're making sure that we are focusing in on cleaning up our act on the inside as a human being, right? Uh, I think you said it, said it quite more eloquently than me. But just that because I think the... The, the conversation over here in the UK is definitely not that focused around what we can do to improve our health, especially around COVID, you know what I mean? Like it's obviously fairly clear that if you have pre-existing health conditions or if you're overweight or if you have a few different things going on, you're way more susceptible to this thing than others. And, and you know, I think we should explore that idea a little bit more of, of what else can we do to actually make sure that the host, us, is... Yep as strong as we possibly can make it. So then we can be resistant to whatever's out there, right? Yeah. And that's, isn't that at the basic, the very core of chiropractic philosophy, right? That we have this uh, innate intelligence that allows us the ability to adapt to ever-changing environments. And that as human beings, we're, we're consistently self-developing, self-maintaining, you know, self-adapting and self-healing mechanisms as long as we can get rid of the interference. And of course, we know there are three interferences to the nerve system, which are physical traumas, emotional stresses, and environmental toxins. So while chiropractic is leading that philosophy and correcting one of these major interferences, uh, perhaps the most important interference in correcting the subluxation, uh, there's still a lot of other interferences that are damaging people's nerve systems. And uh, if we're going to allow 
you know, it's Pasteur's whole thing. You got to have a germ. How virulent is it in the quality of the host? Mm. And so medicine is always focused on the germ and its virulence, which we have little control over, right? Like COVID. Yeah. Uh, chiropractic is always focused on the quality of the host. And so how do we get the quality of the host uh, more maximized uh, for a greater expression, which has been, I mean, my, the bottom line is it has been at the core of everything I've done my whole lifetime, which is that simple principle, um, not only applied clinically, but applied in educating patients so they understand it and realize that there's a framework that chiropractic has created for them, a framework that they can put all these pieces in that make sense. Um, we, we were building a building when I was at Palmer and we had an architect from another state and his wife came down with a serious issue, um, life threatening actually, but it wasn't acute. It wasn't like she was going to pass in three months, but she needed to address this. So uh, his story was she went to a naturopath and that woman did some metabolic testing, cleaned up a lot of her diet, those kinds of things, did some cleanses. And along the way, told uh, this woman uh, that she also needed to put chiropractic into the equation. So she didn't leave the nature of path. She added chiropractic to what she was doing. And the chiropractor did what you and I would do, right? X-ray, correct subluxation, frequency of care. The chiropractor said, hey, you need to look at some stress reduction stuff along with this uh, massage. I don't know, all the things. And it took the woman, the woman beat the, the, the condition but it took her two years to put the team together. And in medicine, you walk into a hospital, the team's all in the same building, right? They just move you from room to room, you follow me? So I think chiropractic philosophically has created this incredible framework uh, to realize the quality of the host and uh, this vitalistic notion that we're self-developing, self-maintaining, self-healing mechanisms. Uh, and now we need to put a framework of and uh, at least have available. I don't think they should all be in a chiropractic office, nor do I think a chiropractor should try to practice in other fields. We correct subluxations, but to be able to create the philosophical framework and then have people have access to resources when they get pregnant and they want to do birth differently, we should have access to that so the team can be built for them to build their best life. Yeah. No, it's, it's easy to lose focus on that, you know, um, especially when, like, if you are engaged in the, the media on a daily basis, uh, and obviously the media is not talking about how you can strengthen the host. They're sort of still on that narrative of, um, you know, viruses and vaccines. Um, so it's it's a nice, safe place. So, But, you know, if you can remind, like, our, if any of our team are listening to this, then it's like that thing of, like, when someone new comes in the door, just making sure that everyone is aware that it's a safe place to actually have that discussion around um, we're here to help you be as healthy as you possibly can be. Um, yeah. And your back pain is just the motivation as to why you walk in the door. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've looked at uh, <clears throat> one of the... Um, I just did a graduation talk at uh, Life the other day, last weekend. And uh, I was thinking about, I've always been, I've always loved film uh, from my earliest, earliest, earliest memories, which I have few of, by the way. I don't know why my sister and my mother used to sit around and talk about all these things that happened early on in our lives. And even when they were telling me, I had no recollection emotionally or anything to them. But there are a few of them, and one of them was, I love movies from the day I can remember remembering anything. I love movies. And um, we lived out in the country. I grew up on a little farm. I had to get up in the morning and milk cows and harvest corn and all sorts of things. 
you know, feed chickens and get eggs. And that was what I did before I got on my horse and took off, you know, through the desert in New Mexico every day. But um, on Saturdays, we used to bug, I used to bug my mother unmercifully uh, to drive us into Albuquerque, New Mexico, and drop me off at the Highland Theater on North Central Avenue. Um, and in those days, they had, um, there were always two movies. You paid your money and you got two movies. There was the A movie, but studios back then had to keep their actors busy. So they had to make a lot of movies. And of course, a lot of B movies that they couldn't really sell. So there was always an A movie and a B movie. And my mother, who had no appreciation for art or film, would just drop me off in between errands. So invariably, I was going into a movie in the middle of the movie. And so I learned to watch the end of whatever movie I was watching, watch the whole next film from front to back, and then watch the beginning of the original movie up to the point where I had walked in. And I learned by doing that was sort of a blessing in disguise because I learned about foreshadowing, about uh, that uh, how films are laid out uh, and that you would see stuff if every of us had gone to a film twice, right? And the second time we see all sorts of things we didn't see the first time because we know what's going to happen at the end. Uh, when I went to film, I love movies so much. I, I, until COVID, I would go to six to eight movies a week in theaters. Uh, wow. That was just what I did all week. And I midway through my life, I burnt out. And uh, when Joe and I were doing Renaissance and I dropped out and went laid on a beach in Southern California for four years. And by the way, if people tell you you get tired of that after a while, it's a lie. <laughs> but but it, it, maybe we can come back to it but um, uh, it was hard coming off the beach I eventually did it but when I was there I decided to go to film school at UCLA so I enrolled in film school just with giggles and grins and um, one of the first books we read was a had to read was a little book it's still the book they use a guy named Ed Fields on how to write films how to write scripts film scripts and it's a little thin book, and it basically says um, that every film, with the exception of maybe a handful of films in the history of the movie theater, have always followed exactly the same formula. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and an end. And the beginning is about 15 minutes, the end is about 15 minutes, and the middle is an hour to an hour and a half. So in the beginning of it, the, all the characters are introduced, right? If you ever go back and watch a film with this, all the main characters are introduced somehow in the beginning of the film. And then about 15 minutes in, there's what they call a pivot point. Something happens where the protagonist, you and I, right? Because we always want to be the hero in our own story, right? right. The protagonist, something happens that sets them on a course against an antagonist. It could be time. It could be a person. It could be a situation. There's always an antagonist that the protagonist is in conflict with. And then the middle of the movie, which is where most films actually fall apart, there are all these subplots and the quality of a film has to do with the number and the quality and interconnections of all the subplots, uh, which is different than a porn film, right? In a porn film, there are no subplots. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, but you know right at the beginning what the end is gonna be, right? It's just, it's a linear thing with no subplots along the way. Um, and then the end of a good film, there's another pivot point just before the end of the film where the protagonist uh, overcomes the, the obstacle of the antagonist and then cleans it up at the end. That's all films have, have, that have ever been done have fit into that story. 
And so I was looking at, you know, beginning, middle, and I'm getting to look at the end now of my story and looking at some of those pivot points along the way, things that sent me in a different direction than I thought I was going in. Mm. Uh, one of them was, was um, um, I was playing basketball. I was a McDonald All-American basketball player in high school yeah. and playing in college in New Mexico and hated the coach. And I had a scholarship in Chicago uh, at DePaul University with old man Ray Myers. And this was back when DePaul was a major force in basketball. Um, but you had to sit out a year, and it was the Vietnam War. And my dad said, you know, sit out, but not at home, because if you do, you're going to get drafted. So he said, get in school. So not knowing where to go, he said, why don't you go to Palmer for a year? I don't, you know, I, he said, I know you want to play basketball. I know you want to be a basketball coach. And I think I would have been a wealthy, good basketball coach. You know, they make seven, eight million a year. Yeah. Uh, these days. Um, but uh, he said, sit out for a year at Palmer and then you can decide, you know, get up to DePaul and do what you're going to do. So I was sitting at Palmer three quarters in and getting ready to leave at the end of the quarter. And Virgil Strang, who later became the president, was teaching anatomy at the time. Uh, and he was an amazing man. Uh, in those days, uh, chiropractors were being taken to court for things. Um, when I was in school, they were still putting the last few chiropractors in jail in 1972 for practicing medicine without a license in Louisiana, wow. which is a whole other story. But anyway, Virgil Strang would get called in to testify about the quality of chiropractors' education. And his classic thing was uh, he would tell the opposing attorney, open to any page in Gray's Anatomy and read me the first line, and then he would repeat the rest of the page verbatim. Uh, I mean, that was, he was just an amazing guy. But anyway, he, he gave us some extra credit points uh, one night uh, to go listen to a guy in an old, dark, dank, it had been a nunnery, the school had bought it, but they hadn't transformed it yet. It had an old, dark gym in it. And uh, they used to have speakers there. So a bunch of us went to hear this speaker, uh, not so much because we needed the extra credit points, but if you've ever been to Davenport in the middle of the winter time. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just sucks. Like, yeah. There's nothing to do. So we went and um, it was a four hour lecture by a guy named Reggie Gold. Yeah. And three hours into it, I couldn't tell you today what he said. Three hours into it, I go, I'm not leaving. This is what I'm going to do with my life. And never left Palmer. That was the pivot point, right? Uh, that headed me down this track. So there's yeah. been a number of those in my life, three or four of them that are just monumental pieces that just, transformed the direction I was going in if you're open. Most people, I'm sorry to ramble, but so most people are so goal-oriented that when the universe opens up a door for them that isn't on their goals, they miss it. Uh, and I've yeah. sort of been blessed with the idea that, hey, there's a door open. I think I'm just going to abandon everything I'm doing up to this point and walk through the door yeah. and see what's on the other side. And so it created an amazing set of experiences um, that I think are unlike most people's experiences. So look, an interesting well, story there where you sort of, as you're saying, you know, you sort of, you're now looking back almost on all of the different things and different pivot points that you've sort of had through your life. Um, and, but you're still sort of making a big impact on the chiropractic profession, I think, but it's at, at what point, because I, I was had, I was introduced to this idea of, you know, you mentioned goal setting there just before and how some people are a bit too focused on the goal, but I'd never really thought about the idea until about a, a few months ago of setting yourself, what is your legacy goal, 
right? Like, um, what do you, how do you want to leave the world a better place effectively, right? So at what, did you ever set yourself a legacy goal and wave 25 years ago, or did it just evolve that way where you kind of thought, well, you know, there's only one set of hands here. If I can educate more people to become chiropractors, it's going to be sort of way more impactful than just these little hands, you know, in a private practice, right? Talk to me about, you obviously are leaving a legacy, but, you know, at what point did you decide it was a, that was your, your, your life's journey? Yeah. Well, you know, the, if I'm going back to my film example, the plot line is the same through the whole film. It's the subplots that make it interesting along the way. And the plot line has always been for me opposing the status quo. I've always been that person, right? Always sort of outside um, what everybody says is the way to do it because it never made sense to me. Most of the stuff of what they told us to do. And then that whole notion of that, what we call vitalism today, which Doug Gates and I brought into uh, the profession in um, the early 1970s when we were teaching philosophy at Sherman, but um, the notion that the body is a self-developing, self-healing, self-maintaining mechanism, which puts you outside the main medical thought immediately, right? Uh, As a treatment outside in treatment. So however you want to label that philosophically or evidence-based, this whole notion of the body is this amazing, amazing mechanism that's not a machine. It's a vibrant, dynamic, quantum organism that's adapting to the environment uh, and can become anything that you ask it to become for all intents and purposes. That's been my plot line through my whole life, right? Um, and so um, one, of the, uh, one of the moments for me on that was I was laying on the beach in Southern California and as I mentioned, going to the beach, all you have to do is quit. It's easy to drop out. You just quit. Coming back is hard because you have to construct something. And uh, they drugged me to, a friend of mine drugged me to a seminar, a one-night seminar, five-hour program in San Diego, California. Uh, there were um, um, 5,000 people there that night. Uh, this was long before the whole notion of Tony Robbins and all that kind of stuff. And we walked into this auditorium with 5,000 people. And there was a stage with a big chalkboard on it. That was it. No technology, just a big chalkboard for 5,000 people. And a guy named Werner Earhart came out. Uh, if you know Landmark Education, the forum, oh, yes. yeah. that was Werner Earhart. He created that. It was okay. Earhart Seminar Training, right? Yes. And this was early on when it was really intense. And he put three circles up on the board to your question. Uh, The first one was a big circle and he wrote inside of it, this is everything you know, and explain what that was, right? Everything you know intellectually, everything you know from a biological and neurological consciousness, unconsciousness standpoint, it's inside what you know. And he said, it always has certain outcomes and they never change. And if you can't get outside of what you know, the outcome, your life is already over. You're just you're just living it out in different scenarios from this point on. Then he put another circle outside of that one. And he labeled it, you know that you don't know. Because there's a lot of stuff that you and I know that we don't know. I, I know that I don't know how to speak Russian, right? So, But I know that I don't know how to do it. And in those days, early on, I knew that I didn't know how to stand up in front of people and give a lecture. Uh, it took me a year and a half to get the guts to stand up in my office and do a healthcare class. Um, 
and it was just horrible, right? It was horrible. So it was stuff that I knew that I didn't know how to do, but I knew that if I could get into that realm and change behaviors, the outcomes would be different. And then he put a thing up outside of that, a huge circle. He probably should have just left it blank. He said, this is the realm that we don't know that we don't even know. We don't know that we don't even know. And that's the part about the goals, right? The goals happen inside of what we know and they push us towards what we know that we don't know. Like, how can I get a better car? How can I build a bigger practice? How can I do this? But the exciting part as a human being is um, the realm of we don't know that we don't know. I'll give you one example because people, it always sounds sort of obtuse, right? To talk about that. Um, When I got to life, we created a, on paper, a think tank called the Octagon. And it was based on the eight core values. Uh, uh, I was riding on an airplane one day and I was reading one of the endless articles about uh, someone who had ripped off the system. It happened to be an MD um, that had ripped off the system and he was being taken to court um, because they took his license and all sorts of stuff. Um, And so he went to court, he found an unethical attorney and went to court as both the defendant and as the uh, plaintiff. And so uh, the attorney put him on the stand as the doctor who screwed up and showed how this guy was totally incompetent in everything that he had done. And then he took him off the stand, swore him back in as the patient and showed how his life had been wrecked because what he had done was he had diagnosed his own problem, taken some drugs, the drugs ate holes in the stomach and he couldn't practice medicine any longer. So he sued himself as a pa- as the patient. He sued himself as a doctor and won two and a half million dollars. And I thought, how, how bizarre our system is that you could do something like that. But then emotionally, personally, how unethical would you have to be? And so I was riding on this airplane and I had read a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King that said, true education is about knowledge and character. And schools are great at handing out diplomas and knowledge and never address the issue of character. And so I wrote, wrote down eight values that, that day, like integrity, et cetera, and went back to the school and said, what if we made this sort of the core of the educational program at Life? And of course, Life jumped on that. Um, and they're, they're still there. There's a big plaza with eight huge stones. And in each one of the stones is one of the core values are embedded in the stones if you ever get to Life and walk through um, the plaza. But anyway... Wow. Um, we created a think tank and we said we ought to be having conversations about these values. And so the first five years, we had a conversation about vitalism. And we brought experts in from medicine and yoga and uh, the CDC and chiropractic. And we'd have these incredible once a year conversations about vitalism and the nerve system, uh, et cetera. And um, the second five years, we had a discussion on integrity and to try to get there quickly, one of the things that came out of it was a discussion on a secular ethics, non-religious ethics, compassion, forgiveness, reconciliation, tolerance, resilience, uh, all issues, by the way, that the Dalai Lama has been pushing for years outside of his Buddhist religion, right? Just secular ethics that should apply to all of us. And we ought, why aren't we training children in school in these things along with math and English, right? To have compassion and forgiveness. Um, anyway, so we created this center called the Center for Compassion, Integrity, and Secular Ethics. And one of the programs that it did, we started, 
We started a bachelor's degree program, which was extremely difficult in a prison um, with women. Uh, the first 15 candidates, and these were women, they weren't in for DUIs. Three of the women were in there and will never be released. They were in there for murder. Most of them, I think the average woman was in there for 20 years that was in the program. And they had to take the same class, the same program, same tests, everything as the students at life taking their programs. Um, and we graduated the first 15 of these women. Four of them had, or three of them had perfect 4.0s. And the prison even released some of them early because of the work that they had done. And one of the women is now lecturing across the country on these issues to uh, large audiences of police and lawyers and attorneys in, the, in that judicial system. And you go, you know, when we started the idea of flying around on the airplane that we ought to have eight values at the school and one of them ought to be integrity, we didn't know that we didn't know that someday we'd be graduating because of that women from prison and transforming uh, the, the recidivism rate, which is about 70% in the U.S. 70% of people that get out of prison wind up back in prison. Yeah. Except if they're educated and that number then drops into the low teens. It's the only thing that ends recidivism. So, you know, when we're starting this thing on an airplane, who would have thought that someday we'd be ending recidivism? And if we would have just been focused on certain goals, like how many students can we get or the curriculum or whatever, we would have missed out on the opportunity the universe was laying out for us in the realm that we know that we didn't know. Uh, and for me personally, uh, one of the thing, and then I'll, um, one of the things personally was because of what we created and the programs we created at life, the Dalai Lama got very closely associated with the university. And uh, it happened, I was at a meeting with him, he was speaking to 7,000 people and at lunch, he granted me a private audience. And I sat down with him for 20 minutes. It was fun. Uh, it was a room, uh, I don't know, about, imagine a hotel room, double a hotel room, yeah. right? So it was probably, you know, 20 by 20, something like that. And yeah. in there were 10 CIA people, because he's a head of state. So, you know, they're all in their black suits talking in their wrists. Uh, he's a terrorist in China because of the Tibetan issue. So there's 10 people with military fatigues with automatic weapons and hand grenades and, you know, knives strapped on their body. Then you've got all the monks in the press and that's a private audience with the Dalai Lama. So <laughs> he and I sat there and he's a real jokester. We joked around, we talked and uh, I invited him to life, which he said, yeah, sure, I'll come. And then his handlers freaked out because they got to make it happen. But uh, on the way out of the room, and we didn't talk about this at all, uh, some 15 years earlier, two MDs, um, had screwed up with my daughter and killed her on an operating table. Uh, I hated those guys. Um, hated them. I would have harmed them, I think, if I ever got around them. And uh, carry that in your heart, in your soul. Uh, it has an impact on you. And I walked out of the room that day um, after being with the Dalai Lama. And the minute I stepped out of the room, this wave of forgiveness just swept over my body. It was like night and day. Um, doesn't mean those two guys aren't responsible for what they did, but it also means I don't have to walk around hating them, right? Get on with my life. So, you know, those are like critical moments in a person's life. And it, you know, who would have thought when I was talking to the Dalai Lama that I would have walked out of the room and my daughter from 15 years earlier, I would have had this feeling of forgiveness. That's the realm that you don't know that you don't know. Do you follow me? I follow you. I mean, uh, what an amazing answer to a question 
that again, I didn't know what I didn't know about legacy goals and let alone, you know, when you just have those random things like a flight in the middle of the night no, to nowhere, you kind of got this great idea and then you have no idea as to how impactful that potentially could be, you know. Um, so, yeah, great. Uh, great. It's, it's just a shame that we don't have enough, well, you know, like uh, we've got heaps of time, but it's just like an entire life uh, story sort of squished into one little episode is hard to do. Really. <laughs> hey, let's yeah. change up the pace slightly though. Okay. Quick fire questions, okay? Right. Which may well, um, I don't know, it'll just break it up a little bit. Um, and maybe you've already answered this, but maybe not. Let's do it. Question one, when do you get your best ideas? Are you like that guy who gets up super early and kind of clicks into action straight away or it's always like once everyone else has gone to bed and then you're there by yourself? Uh, doing yeah, something? I'm not an early person. I don't think human beings should get up before the sun comes up. That's not me. <laughs> and I'm up till one or two o'clock every night. Uh, my 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 brainstorms usually come about three in the morning while everybody's asleep. And, so uh, you pr- you practice that thing of like never go to bed on the same day you woke up, sort of thing, right? Uh, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, now, not I, recommending it for other people, but uh, it works for me. Uh, drink. Are you a cup of tea, English tea sort of guy, or a coffee guy? I wouldn't put a cup of coffee in my mouth. Wow. Here, I, I had one one sip of a coffee early on. I can't even stand the smell of it. So I'm a cup of tea guy. Mm-hmm. And how do you take it? What's that? How do you oh, take your tea? Up, maybe a touch of honey, but straight up. And, uh, you know. Well, um, any wonder you'd like England then, because that's what, well, in fact, they tend to put a pile of milk in there though. But uh, anyway. Hey, I love to come. I love to come to, to England and on Sunday, um, sit down for three hours and eat biscuits and uh, tea. <laughs> it fits my personality in a great hotel, you know. So what about if you're not into coffee, are you uh, into any alcoholic beverage or you keep it clean as well? Um, you know, if I never had another sip of alcohol, I'd be fine with it. Yeah. But I love, I love all the detail of wine. Yeah. Um, and so I've got a cellar going and I've got about five, 600 bottles down there. And um, I don't ever drink. I've never had a glass of wine by myself. Yeah. But to pull one up for dinner, it's great. And is that cellar in Puerto Rico? Uh, right now, it's at a vault in Atlanta uh, where, you know, it's temperature-controlled vault, and I've got to figure out how to get it dispersed between Puerto Rico and Detroit. Mm. Wow. Uh, walk on the beach or a walk in the snow? Oh, are you kidding? I Beach. So you've just, you had a place in Colorado though that you've just sold, right? Because you've just gone yeah. full on Puerto Rico. Yeah, I bought it in 1996. It was a 540 acre horse ranch up in the mountains surrounded by four and a half million acres of uh, national forest. We used to do seminars up there, ropes wow. courses. We were the original ropes course people, mountain climbing ropes courses. It was all built up there. Uh, and then it just became, I think I was there five times in the last two years. And it just was time to let it go. But snow, I'm not a snow guy. Um, I grew, I raised my kids in Colorado. They're great skiers. I went skiing twice, both times it was a disaster. What? And Hang on, you didn't even go skiing and you had the place in Colorado? Um, no, no, I went twice only because I got roped into it. No, no, I'm a beach guy. Get every up every morning, every evening, hour walking up and down the soft sand and hearing the waves hit the, hit the beach. 
So have you got some pretty good, uh, I think you said the waves are crashing on your uh, near your house. So is that a uh, bit of good surf out where you are or not, not great surf? I'm not a surfer, but um, my friend Sebastian, uh, who's a chiropractor there, Seba, is a surfer and he surfs all over the island. So yeah. it's yeah. not bad surfing. It's not 30 foot waves, uh, but um, it's yeah, decent. Yeah, sure it's surfing. good. And the benefit of the island. Is kite surfing. Uh, right? kite because surfing. we have wind coming all the time. In fact, yeah. from my from my balcony that looks over the beach, uh, you can see the school where they teach the kite surfing. There'll be 30, 40 kites out there every single day. Wow. Sounds ideal. Now, baseball or basketball? Sounds like you're a basketball fan. I'm a basketball fan for playing, uh, but I'm a baseball fan for going to the game. There's mm-hmm. something, I wouldn't watch baseball on TV to save my life, but there's something about sitting in the stands with the fans and uh, talking baseball and it's casual. And um, um, Luke, my business partner and myself, went to Chicago, uh, well, nearly two years ago now. And yeah, we sat, sat in uh, Wrig- Wrigley Field and... Um, mm-hmm. Choked down a hot dog and got some banter going with some locals. Um, yeah. We had no idea what was going on out the middle there, but uh, it was great. Yeah, they've wrecked the game now by putting the fences up. Uh, right. They've wrecked the intimacy of it for me. But now being at a ballpark in the evening, that beautiful grass and it's nice and cool and uh, can't beat it. Now, here's a curveball. Explain to me these uh, one of these rules, or maybe if you don't know either of them, okay? The sporting rule, the offside rule in soccer, or LBW in cricket? I actually like cricket. <laughs> um, Are you I'm, familiar not soccer, with... I'm not a soccer fan. Okay, so, you know, you can go out LBW. Yeah. Do you know what that is? Uh, I think so. Explain it to me. Well, LBW means leg before wicket, and that's that thing where when the ball hits you on the legs, when it would have hit the stumps, you know? Okay, yeah. So, yeah. Two random things that I was assuming that uh, probably didn't um, transfer that well across the Atlantic, so. (laughs) You know what? When I lived in Jamaica, I got into cricket. Yeah. Not a lot. Well, it's the same sort of a thing as baseball, when you except it goes for five days, not five hours, right? So They have a short version, too. (laughs) They do have the short version. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the problem with me in soccer is I just can't – people play for an hour and a half, and at the end of the game, the score is one. There's just not – it feels like that game when you were a kid, you'd have your younger brother, he wanted the ball, and he'd run to you and you'd throw it to somebody else. And then he'd run to them, they'd throw it to somebody else. It just seems cruel, and then at the end, there's only one. It's even worse when it's zero. Yeah, 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 absolutely. (laughs) Right. So and, I'm and, sorry. I know this is the wrong place to be saying this, but I'm not a soccer fan. No, nah, that's cool. Rugby. Yes. Rugby. I, I live, I live to watch rugby. So. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, rugby is just, we've just finished the six nations uh, over here. So uh, Europe and um, the three home counties here all get together and um, have a great competition every well, as it's coming into spring. So um, that's just finished. And the, the Welsh guys got up and won that this year. So I saw that. And uh, I came over a few years ago when they had the cup in England mm. uh, uh, with my friend Ross McDonald from Scotland. We, uh, we watched Scotland play uh, um, the All Blacks and then the Samoan team. Uh, and are you, are you helping Ross out then with uh, the Scot- Scottish College then, are you? Or? No, not at this time. Yeah. Okay. Not opposed to just you and I are 
working on that level right now. Now, here's another little, because you got obviously, well, I guess, did you found Quest? Yes. Oh, well, it was Renaissance, wasn't it? Yeah. And then it, it, it changed into Quest. Well, it, no, Renaissance, Joe Felicia and I started that. And it was primarily oriented towards research and patient education. And then when I went to the beach, I sold out my share of Renaissance to Joe. When okay. I came off the beach, we started Quest. Uh, and that became a full practice management program. It was the largest one ever. We had at one time 7,000 people uh, in Quest, 7,000 docs. Wow. Uh, sites all over the world. So, uh, and that did more than patient education. We called it the 10 strategies. It looked at everything from philosophy to research to technique to um, management to education to branding to staff to kids. So it was a whole – and to personal development. That's when we bought the ranch in Colorado for people to come out and do uh, four or five-day programs on personal development in the mountains with us. So here's the question, and you are the perfect person to ask – why do we as humans need so much coaching or mentoring or, you know, just, and, and I think chiropractors especially really buy into it, but not everyone does. But, but what, what is it about human nature that you think, having dealt with 7,000 different people over the, over the years, yeah. um, what's, what's the, why, why do we need it? Yeah, there's a reason why God put more, than one of us on the planet, and it wasn't to argue, right? Um, the reason why we're, there's more than one of us here is that what we can't see things in ourselves, but we can see by looking at other people mirroring back to ourselves. So the whole idea of growth is about, can you have self-reflection? And based on that self-reflection, then can you create the skill sets necessary to change, right? To recognize your role in something and then to change so that you produce a different outcome the next time the circumstance comes along. Self-reflection is really, really, really hard, right? Because we, all, we, we only see the world from our own perspective. So whether it's a psychologist or a guy standing in front of a room of 5,000 people in San Diego or whatever, these human beings become mirrors that reflect back to us certain experiences and cause us to have self-reflection on them. So it's absolutely critical. So that's a, it's a, basically it's just like it's it's really hard to be sort of standing in front of that mirror yourself and saying you suck at this, right? Whereas it's impossible. Yeah. Whereas if you have someone you know and trust or you feel is experienced in these things, tell you that you suck at that, you'll likely right. listen to him, right? Right. And even even just self observation, you know, to be out in public and to watch people carrying on certain behaviors, and then to think, do I carry on those behaviors? And I don't want to wind up like that, right? So it's, it's about self-reflection, whether you get it in feedback just from your environment or whether it's a more organized thing with a psychologist. Uh, after I got divorced the first time, uh, I had a phenomenal psychologist and I went to her for seven years after I, after I got divorced to learn more about myself. Uh, and every time I left the place, and it was almost once a week, once every other week, I left there with incredible insights into who I was and what, what I want to become. You know, you talked earlier about legacy. Um, to me, it's less about building a legacy and more about creating. We know in quantum physics today, it's more about creating the world you want to live in on a day-to-day -day basis. So, Yeah, and not letting it kind of like 
mold us as such, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. You know, the, the beautiful thing about quantum physics, one of, the, one of the principles today is this notion of entanglement, which says that the two, two subatomic particles at distant locations can be having the same experience. In fact, they are the same experience. Uh, and the government's already using it instead of radar. You know, radar, you have to send a signal out. It has to bounce off a plane, come back and be perceived by some piece of equipment. Entanglement, uh, literally, you can have the, you can tell what the person on the plane that's flying the plane, the experience that there's having, there's no way to trace it because there's no signal going back and forth. It's two molecules in separate locations being read, having the same experience. Um, in chiropractic, you and I have experienced this all the time. You know, the days you go into the office, you had a bad morning, had a fight with your spouse. I don't know, you know, you're not feeling well, blah, blah, blah. It's the day that all the new patients don't show up. It's the day people call up and cancel versus the day when you're really in it and you're in the zone or, you know, at life we called it lasting purpose to give, serve, love, and do. You're into give, serve, and love in that moment with that patient. And they're having amazing experiences on the table and the universe is opening up. So uh, this whole notion of creating the internal environment uh, into that kind of whatever you want, but let's say it's into that kind of lasting purpose where you're serving for the sake of serving, giving for the sake of giving, loving for the sake of loving, uh, creates an experience that's not only different for you, but an experience that's different for the people around you. And we know an entanglement why that happens now. Wow. It's uh, phenomenal to sort of think how, you know, what else we're going to reveal in the next century, isn't it? You know, um, yeah. Madness. Uh, hey, just uh, how are you doing for time, by the way? Have you uh, got anything pressing you need doing? No, you go as far as you want. You tell me when to stop. <laughs> Look, again, just thanks for joining us. Um, you know, I know you're a busy guy and uh, you've got a lot on your plate, but uh, you've set aside a bit of time for us over here in the UK. Um, uh, you mentioned the Dalai Lama as a fairly big person of influence for you. Give us uh, someone else or one or two other people that maybe you'd love to have around the dinner table and uh, alive or dead maybe as well um, uh, as to who would you, would you want the Dalai Lama back for dinner or have you got a couple of other people in mind? Oh, no, absolutely. Dalai Lama for sure. You're, you're um, going to crack open the best from that wine cellar that you've got, right? <laughs> um, and who are you going to invite? Yeah, yeah, you know what? It was funny. The night before I was supposed to meet the Dalai Lama for this private audience, I thought at three in the morning, oh, wait a minute, am I supposed to take him a gift? Right? I didn't know what that protocol was. I, I sort of panicked and uh, uh, I, you know, I'm, I thought, well, he doesn't want a T-shirt, you know, from life. So what do I take? And uh, I had taken a piece of the Berlin Wall that when they were pulling the wall down, when the students were gathering, I was there for a number of those evenings, I was on the way to Norway to lecture. And I got a piece of the Berlin Wall because I had found that my father, I had just found out from my father, who was this quiet, gentle, never talked about his life, um, that he had been at D-Day. And he never said a word of it his whole life. And I thought, I'm going to take him a piece of the Berlin Wall. That's what he fought for, right? It's that wall to come down, yeah. so to speak. Um, and so I had given him that, but I had another, I had a half, another piece of it. And so I gave it to the Dalai Lama um, when I met with him. Uh, I don't know how we got off of that. But anyway. Um, no, so, well, um, so who else are you going to invite to crack yeah. open that bottle of wine then? 
uh, two other people. One is a guy named Richard Moore, um, who was from Ireland. Yeah. Um, Richard Moore was 11 years old when um, Black Sunday occurred in Derry. Yeah. Uh, the British opened fire on the Irish Republican Army and killed, I think it was January 29th, 72, 1972, yeah. Yeah. Um, Black Sunday. Uh, one of the people that was killed was Richard Moore's uncle, um, who was trying to pull a young girl uh, who had been shot out of harm's way, and he got shot and killed. And then two weeks later, Richard was walking to school as an 11-year-old with his mates, and a British soldier by the name of Patrick picked him off from 200 yards with a rubber bullet hit him right between the eyes and blinded him for life. Um, his brother swore revenge on the British, uh, but Richard's mother was different. She had looked around at what all that anger and hate had done to their country, et cetera. And so she raised Richard and her brothers in an environment of forgiveness and reconciliation. And 33 years later, Richard met the British soldier and forgave him publicly. Uh, I've met, Richard now has an organization in Ireland, supported by the Dalai Lama. In fact, the Dalai Lama calls Richard his hero. How'd you like to be the Dalai Lama's hero? Dalai Lama said, I go all over the world lecturing about forgiveness. This guy did it. And so he has an organization uh, in Ireland, Richard does, he's a great fellow, um, that um, trains through the United Nation, trains uh, school teachers, K through 12, all over the world to teach these uh, issues of compassion, forgiveness, et cetera, in their classes. So Stanford University and Life created the curriculum for it. And that's my connection. So Richard's an amazing guy. Uh, I met Patrick, the guy who shot him, who's never acknowledged it. Uh, we were in Derry a few years ago with the Dalai Lama and Richard raising money for this organization. And there was a luncheon, a, a white glove luncheon, about 80 people, all bankers and real estate people that getting ready to get pinched for big bucks. And the Dalai Lama came in and there was a table of eight. And at the table was uh, Richard and some people and Patrick, the British soldier and his wife. And Patrick's a very proper British gentleman, right? And with a very proper British wife. And uh, the Dalai Lama sat down uh, at the table and uh, whispering back and forth, you could see Richard and Dalai Lama talking. And um, he finally the Dalai Lama finally realized that Patrick, the guy who shot Richard, was sitting across the table from him. And so the Dalai Lama goes, doing that to Patrick? And Patrick, I mean, it was really like awkward. And he made Patrick get up and come around the table. And what the Dalai Lama does, if he wants to greet you really warmly, he doesn't hug. He puts his forehead against your forehead. And Patrick, who's kind of tall in the Dalai Lama, sure he had Patrick lean down and he put his forehead against uh, Patrick's forehead for the longest time. We were at our table, we started recording it at about a minute and it kept going. And when Dalai Lama gets up, he has a big smile on his face. Patrick had tears running down his face, went back and sat down. So Richard, Richard Moore is an amazing guy. I'd want him at my table uh, for that conversation. Wow. And, and to, to sort of try and glean like how you could actually be able to forgive something like that right so or you know um to learn that lesson which can't be taught really i guess uh other yeah other than his mother you know making sure they didn't go in the other direction wow the other person i'd want at the table with me is ayn rand okay 
the author, right? right. I just there's probably no one whose principles about self responsibility and in our culture and those kinds of things and integrity uh, that means more to me than than that woman's writing, all the way from Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead, you know, her fictional books down to uh, her volumes of books on um, uh, her whole notion, right? So. Uh, anyway, I would, would love to have her at the table. She'd probably be a pain in the ass, uh, but uh, <laughs> I'd love to have her at the table. I, I love the fact I didn't really prep you for that, but you were just like right on it, you know. Uh, you've maybe thought about well, the people that inspire you uh, or the people that have influenced you over the years, and uh, that's obviously two of them or three of them right there. So, brilliant. Um, well, what else could, you know, I think uh, I, I'm pretty much, you know, so, I, well, actually the last question I want to have for you then is how do you fill in your day now, right? Um, what, what uh, you know, what effectively is your day job right now, apart from yeah, being so on the board for Cairo One? I'm board for Cairo One. I'm the Chancellor Emeritus at Life, which means I get all the benefits and don't have to do any of the work. <laughs> Brilliant. Anyway, so you know, show up and lecture and those kinds of things, but it doesn't require any day-to-day activity. They have a great group managing that. Um, a couple of r- real interests. One is this uh, thing, uh, My Lifestyle IQ, this remote patient management system we've got for docs, which saves docs tons of time, uh, gives them the room to uh, be able to manage things, questions that patients have remotely, and therefore give them more time to see more patients in the practice. So all the way from seeing more people to making more money to Having a better service is uh, this thing called MLIQ, My Lifestyle IQ, which is an app uh, for remote patient monitoring that covers everything from brain health to nourish uh, to positive psychology to um, vital health to um, uh, issues of, you know, that people have, whether sometimes it's weight, sleep, cleansing, uh, but it's really the chiropractic lifestyle uh, that can be managed and a doctor does it all over the adjusting table requires them no time. We did some surveys with patients, uh, 25 of them across the country, uh, some in-depth focus groups and found a couple of things really interesting. One is every one of them loved their chiropractor. I mean, loved their chiropractor, not mildly, loved their chiropractor. Every one of them also said, I have tons of things I want to ask my chiropractor, but they don't have time. Uh, And they weren't angry about it. They just realized that chiropractors were so busy that they didn't have time to sit down and spend 20 minutes with them, talking to them about pregnant, natural birth. You you follow me? Yeah. So the app was created to do that. So a chiropractor can just say, Hey, see this on your next visit, because it's all recorded at the front desk. You know what the patient's working on while they're over the table. You can say, Hey, I see you're working on this. Uh, Keep it up. You're doing great or do this or go to this place in the app. So the chiropractor creates this intimate relationship and can manage the patient and now the patient is thinking about the chiropractor 24-7. Uh, one of the things we do is we ping all the patients on Monday with five things to be aware of that week to make sure their nerve system's working better. Uh, it's based on the three T's, right? Thoughts, traumas, and toxins. Okay. So on Monday, they might get pinged and say, uh, this week when you eat breakfast, uh, write down if you ate out of a box or whole foods. Uh, and one of the other pings might be today when you text, uh, did you text with your neck down or did you text with your neck up? So it's all stuff that people are going to do during the course of the week. And there's a neurological basis for all of it. But it's a constant way of, um, one, creating new, chiro- new lifestyle for the patient. 
but the second thing is that patient all day long when they're texting or whatever, they're picking up their, their phone to text, they're all of a sudden they're going, oh, keep my neck up. They're thinking about you and chiropractic 24-7. So that's a big thing we've been working on for the last two years. It just got released. And the other is we're working on, uh, we've developed a way to deliver chiropractic education that's 70% online. You can get a complete bachelor's degree, a master's degree in anatomy, for example, online. It's mm-hmm. better than sitting in a classroom listening to someone with an uh, accent from India struggling through material because it's the first time they ever taught it. I mean, I'm being sort of extreme. Why shouldn't I learn cell biology from Bruce Lipton rather than somebody they hired from the local community college? Mm-hmm. So we put together an entire curriculum where uh, 70% of it is online. Um, in fact, it's modeled, the University of West Virginia Medical School has no classes any longer. Let me say that again. The University of West Virginia Medical School has no classes any longer. It's all online, and then you go to clinics for your clinical training. So imagine a, a clinic run by Stu Bergson, right? <laughs> outrageously successful clinic. in one, one in Poland and one in this country, that country, every country. People are doing their court and their accreditation coursework online and once a month or whatever, going to clinics for training uh, to become chiropractors. So we so was, was, was this a pre-COVID sort of insight that you had? Or? Yeah, both of these are pre-COVID, way pre-COVID. Yeah, because obviously yeah. that's that's becoming more the norm, isn't it, over here? You know, like, of uh, you know, you, 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 you don't even go to university anymore. So it's like uh, it's kind of forcing that to expedite as well, isn't yeah, it? Two things. One is it's cheaper to deliver. Yeah. And the second thing is, think about this. Uh, we've pretty much limited chiropractic to people getting out of undergraduate school and going to chiropractic school, at least in the States. I know uh, it's a little bit different where you have your um, a bachelor's and get your chiropractic master's in Europe. But same sort of principle. You have to get undergrad work, all of that stuff. If you're a 40-year-old and you get turned on to chiropractic and you've got a job and your spouse has got a job and you've got three kids in school, it's not easy to pack up and go to London. to to enroll in a chiropractic program. You follow me? So right now we're working on it. It, Let's say you and I are having dinner and you go, I've always wanted to be a chiropractor. You go, fill this out. Here, take this, fill this out. The next day your credits are all analyzed. You get a call from a coordinator uh, to let you know that your materials are being delivered by Amazon. Uh, The next day, Amazon delivers all your books. The next day, you don't wait till the next quarter. You don't pack up and leave your job. The books are all delivered the next day. You get an advisor who begins to coach you through the program. You take your courses online. And this isn't casual. It's not like, oh, I'll get to it on the weekend. No, there's work you have to do every day, just like in a normal curriculum. It's evaluated every day. Um, And uh, you you then go for your clinical training to these really successful clinics. um, And you can become a chiropractor. So we've just opened up the world to chiropractic, not just you know, 20 year olds who happen to decide they want to be a chiropractor and can pack up everything and move to somewhere to do it for five years. Yeah. I look, it's a worldwide problem. I think is there's just not enough graduates coming out to sort of uh, fill the demand that's here in the UK. Like there's only three, well, uh, well, there's now I think five schools of chiropractic, but the number of graduates that are coming out are in their sort of hundreds, you know what I mean? And it's, it's hard to find good chiropractors. You look around, there's about 70,000 chiropractors in the U.S. 
by comparison, there's 1.1 million medical doctors. Um, and of course, medical doctors are seeing you for short-term care. We want to see people regularly for a lifetime. How many would there have to be? So 70,000 in the U.S., there's about 7,000 in Canada. Uh, Australasia, New Zealand, Singapore, those places, around 5,000. European Union, twice the size of the United States, it's less than 6,000 chiropractors. Hmm. Uh, if you take all the other 180 countries in the world, 79 countries in the world, add them up, let's say there was 100 chiropractors in each one of them, which there isn't. Uh, Serbia has one, right? A lot yeah. of countries in Europe have zero. Yeah. But assume there was 100 in every one of them. We're still less than 100,000 chiropractors in the world. We need more chiropractors. Hmm. Right. Well, anyone listening, you know where to go. Well, actually, is so can you sign up to this online degree right now? No. Yeah. No. Um, it's all been put together. Uh, we're just waiting for... Um, the right opportunity it probably will not come out of any current schools uh, because the cultural change, pieces of it may come out, but the cultural change would be so great, right? Faculty wouldn't be teaching the way they're teaching and probably wouldn't be the same faculty. You wouldn't have these big on-campus clinics, uh, you know, where students are doing their work and being oversaw. It, it, I, I just can't see it coming out of any current college. Uh, so I think we're a few years down the road. Yeah. Uh, but the curriculum has all been designed and the technology all exists to make it happen. Now it's just a matter of pulling some things together and uh, popping the first one out. So that does answer the question nicely of well, what do you do for a day job is you're continuing on leaving your legacy is what you're doing for a day job. Um, you know, you're, you're probably not doing anything. You're, you're, you're expanding some ideas that you've possibly always had, especially as you've been so involved in education and you're just sort of trying to get ahead of the head of the curve, aren't you? So, you know, it's the same subplot. I've got the same antagonist that I've had my whole life. It's just a different technology world and different resources available to us. Uh, Which is, you said, to challenge the status quo, right? That was your, uh, that's, the, that's the line that goes through the story, right? Yep. I've never understood. I grew up in a very, very religious Southern Baptist, evangelical, sawdust floor kind of a church, right? Um, and I never quite understood when I, even when I was a little kid, they do all this stuff. Someone would get cancer or some condition. And by the time medicine got done butchering them up, then they'd come to church and they'd go, well, now it's in God's hands. And I thought, man, it, you know, if God is, you know, if it's in God's hands when it's that bad, why didn't they put it there in the first place? <laughs> right. And yeah. uh, so even as a six year old, I used to remember having those thoughts in my head and I'm just going, you know, and of course, you know, you and I today would say it probably a little bit differently, but you know, why can't we trust the, the innate power of the body that created the universe? Um, and certainly some of these other things are necessary at times to save a life. But, you know, we're not, I'm walking today because medicine learned how to put metal ankles in an old basketball player that unnaturally tore his ankles up hundreds of times, couldn't walk anymore. I'm not complaining there isn't value, yeah. but not as a, a system of healthcare which is now the third leading cause of death in the United States is our healthcare system. We've got to have some self-reflection and look at things differently. Thanks, Guy, for all your time today, mate. It's just been phenomenal. Just wondering if you've got any parting words of wisdom for all of our listeners that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, so um, Mother Teresa, right? Yeah. The ultimate give, serve, love, and do out of gratitude and abundance. She had a great line that said, uh, I'm a little pencil in the writing hand. 
of a loving God sending a love letter to the world. And I think if we could keep that as our ethos, um, the world would be a much better place to live in. We're just this little piece in the hand of a universe um, that's amazing. And our job is to send a love letter to the world by how we live. So thanks for what you're doing and uh, really happy to be associated with you via Stu. And maybe we can connect up and do some great things for chiropractic in Europe. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. This is a good start to allow that to happen. So thanks again for your time, man. My pleasure, Craig.